Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Up until this point, four of the trumpet judgments have sounded. And according to the pattern that we noticed when we studied the seals, the effects of these first four trumpets are seen on the earth. But now, as we look at the last three, we'll see their effects in the spiritual realm. As the picture of terror begins to grow, these final blasts are described as being the three great woes of the tribulation, when the spiritual forces of wickedness are unleashed and unprecedented suffering results. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it, like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke of the abyss. As the fifth trumpet sounds, John sees a star that had fallen to the earth. The Greek that's used here for had fallen implies that this is something that had happened in the past, but which has continuing ongoing results. So that means the fall had happened before John's vision, but the effects of that fall were still going on. Notice that John sees this star is actually a person, and he says the star was given a key and that he used it to open the abyss, otherwise known as the bottomless pit. In fact, in verse 11 of this chapter, John will reveal just who this fallen star is, saying that he's the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. The Hebrew name Abaddon means destruction and the Greek name Apollyon means destroyer. His names tell us who he is and what he does. He is set upon the destruction of God's plan and the destruction of God's people. Jesus mentioned this destroyer in John chapter 10 verses 10 to 11 when he said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Actually, this angel of the abyss, this destroyer, is known by several names in Scripture. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah gives us the backstory of how this fallen star John saw came to be on earth in the first place. And in doing so, Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15 reveals another Hebrew name for him. The Hebrew word Helel, which means light bearer, when translated into Latin, is the word Lucifer. Look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. 
Again and again in that passage, Lucifer makes his pride obvious by repeating the words, I will and my. He wanted to be like the Most High, like God himself. Isaiah tells us, and Revelation later confirms, that Lucifer was cast out of heaven for his rebellion and that he and the angels who followed him were cast down to earth. Before we go on, it's important to note that though powerful, this fallen angel is a created being and he is not God's equal opposite. Though he does oppose God, he's not God's equal. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, nor is he omnipotent, all-powerful, nor omnipresent. He cannot be in all places at once. He's not the ruler of all, the giver of life. He's not the flip side of the same coin. He would like you to think that he is because he's always wanted to be like God, but that is a lie for he is not. John confirms that lesser authority here in Revelation 1 in that this fallen star had to be given the key to the bottomless pit. It was not something he already possessed. We pick up his next name in the book of Job, which is believed to be the oldest book of the Bible. Job chapter 1 verses 6 through 7 not only reveals his name, but also locates his activity as being on the earth. The angels, it says, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Here, the destroyer is called Satan, which means accuser or adversary. And if you think about it, that's exactly what he did to the faithful man of God, Job. The whole book of Job is really the story of that conflict and Job's response to the adversary. The apostle Peter reminds us that Satan's tactics haven't changed since. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that he currently roams about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's been doing this since before the time of Job, wandering about the earth looking to accuse and destroy those who do not believe. And he doesn't work alone. Scripture tells us that even now there are demons, the angels that accompanied him in his rebellion, that work alongside Satan seeking to influence the realm of men. Jesus healed many who were afflicted by them in the Gospels. And Paul warns us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He reminds us that we're engaged in spiritual battle even now, and he calls us to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against it. As bad as things appear to be now, they're about to get worse because at this point in the final plan of events, Satan gains access to all of his forces. This means that the terrors to come are no longer natural, but rather demonic in origin as the powers of evil are given their last chance to carry out their dreadful work. 
and we see all of them released here in Revelation 9 verse 2. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This refers to a great cloud of demons that are released, and out of that cloud come what John describes as locusts. Throughout Scripture, locusts were fearsome agents of destruction. But the creatures John sees in his vision are no ordinary insects, for they do not harm the vegetation, but they inflict terrible pain and torment upon those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So look at what these locusts do to those who have chosen to follow the Antichrist in verse 5. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. God shows his mercy even in this judgment, for he limits the locusts in two ways. They are not able to kill the earth dwellers, only to torment them, and their torment is limited to five months, which, very interestingly, is the normal life cycle of a locust in nature. However, the agony they are able to inflict is so terrible that those affected long to die, though death eludes them. The only protection against the locusts is the seal of God that marks those who belong to him, for the Lord is a shield to his people. As John expands his description of these creatures in verse 7, he begins to use symbolic language, and we need to understand that he does this for a reason. Symbolism can often convey far more than a regular word or description could. For example, in Revelation 13, the Antichrist will be referred to as the beast rather than merely as the dictator or the political leader. And you can see how calling him a beast actually tells you more about him. It tells you that he will be impossible to reason or negotiate with that he will be unpredictable and savage, that he's calculating, and that he waits to pounce. The images are many, but you get the point. John declares that in verse 7, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. 
John notes that these locusts have the appearance of horses dressed for battle. His comparison is very similar to the way the prophet Joel described the army of locusts that he saw in Joel chapter 2. This is a formidable army. Let's look at the symbolism that John uses. They're like horses prepared for battle, meaning that they're ready for action, that they're aggressive, they're chomping at the bit to get going. They have something on their heads like crowns of gold, perhaps as a sign of authority and great power. The fact that their faces were like the faces of men likely symbolizes that they are intelligent. And when we're told that their hair is like women's hair, we must remember that the culture of John's day viewed a woman's hair as being seductive and alluring. So perhaps this means that there is something fascinating and appealing about them, helping them to captivate their prey. But John likens their teeth to those of lions, both destructive and cruel. The breastplates of iron may point to their hard hearts and the fact that they will show no mercy. As Joel does, John describes the terrible noise associated with them, like the sound of many horses running into battle. How terrifying this must be to those whom they attack. There's not just a frontal assault pictured here, though. They have stings in their tails to inflict torment in their wake. How fitting that the king of these demonic creatures should be called destruction and the destroyer. It really is difficult to discern with clarity what John is seeing here in the vision. Some speculate that the locusts may even be something like helicopters, which would account for their wings sounding like the thundering hoofbeats of many horses with perhaps the hair being a reference to wispy trails of smoke from chemical weapons that do not kill but cause terrible discomfort. We just don't know, but I would point out that whatever John saw is closely associated with the demons, and that those demons are ruled by and working with Satan, and that they bring suffering to those who reject Christ. John concludes this part of the vision with these words. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So as the sixth trumpet sounds, John hears a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And there's something important here that we can't miss. God's earthly temple was an exact copy of what already exists in heaven. We know from descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple that the altars had what appeared to be horns coming out from each corner. Interestingly, these horns had a purpose. 
The Old Testament teaches that should a person fleeing God's judgment run into the temple and grasp hold of one of the horns on the altar, they would be spared and that God would show them mercy. But there were also times when God said that symbolically he would cut the horns off of the altar, meaning that there would be no possibility of receiving his compassion. Notice that we're specifically told here in Revelation 9 that the horns are still on the altar in heaven. This indicates that even at this point, mercy is still available should someone seek it. Unfortunately, we'll soon see in Revelation 9.20 that people do not repent of their sin and they choose not to lay hold of the forgiveness that could be theirs. The sixth angel sounds the trumpet of the second woe, and four angels bound at the great river Euphrates in Iraq are released. No one really knows who these four angels are. Everything is guesswork at best. But it seems that these angels were held in the places from which armies had descended upon Israel in the past. We must notice these destructive angels have been kept for this specific time. Nothing is random or erratic in their release. God is working to his plan. Now we see the arrival of regiments of demonic troops who will annihilate a third of the human race. Verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. This is a very difficult passage to explain, and no one's really been able to fully explain it. A terrifying army is on the move and the number of the mounted troops is 200 million, which may simply mean that they're beyond counting. Everything about their appearance reminds us of hell. Even their mode of transport is both terrifying and destructive. They have heads like lions and tails like serpents. They breathe out fire, smoke and sulfur and inflict injury with their snake-like tails. Whatever this army is, it causes one third of the human race to perish. And again, we see a hint of God's mercy for their ability to destroy is limited. One would think that the remainder of mankind would take warning from this, but what do they do? Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. 
Despite the horror visited upon them, the people of the earth refused to turn to God. They refused to repent, which they could so easily have done. Instead, they chose to continue to bow down to the idols their hands had made and the demon forces behind them. They chose to continue in their evil ways, refusing to repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Interestingly, the Greek word for magic arts there is pharmakeia, which is the root of our English word pharmacy. Pharmakeia means the use of drugs associated with their false worship. In other words, they refuse to repent of their substance abuse and the demonic strongholds that come with it. That's why this Greek word has always been associated with sorcery. The people also did not repent of their sexual immorality, and the Greek word used there for sexual immorality is porneia, which is the root of our English word pornography. But actually, this word encompasses all that is sexually immoral in God's sight. They refused to repent and continued to live in a way displeasing to God, despite his mercy in limiting the effects of these various judgments. These six trumpets have shown us something important. They've revealed that God is in control, no matter how widespread the chaos, and that for now he limits the destruction because his desire is that mankind should repent. It also shows us that he protects his own, either from it or through it all. His judgments are often preparation for deliverance, for the judgments John revealed remind us of the plagues God sent upon Egypt in the Old Testament when Egypt were oppressing his people. And just as those plagues fell prior to the exodus of God's people from their captivity, these judgments of revelation will also occur just prior to the final exodus of God's people from the world controlled by evil. In chapter 10, we see a brief break between the trumpet blasts as God inserts a vision of the mighty angel with a little book. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. John looks toward heaven and he sees another mighty messenger come down to earth. Some even believe this to be Christ himself. Verse 1 describes him as a messenger from heaven who's clothed with the glory cloud of God and crowned with a rainbow which speaks of God's faithfulness to his promises. This messenger's face shines like the sun and his feet are like pillars of fire, which sounds so similar to the way that John previously described Christ. 
He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand, and we'll soon see that this contains the rest of the prophetic message that John must speak. Look at what the messenger does in the latter part of verse 2 and verse 3. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. We see so much symbolism here. He stands over both land and sea, indicating that he is Lord over all creation and over all the nations. His voice is like the roar of a lion. If he is not the lion of Judah himself, then certainly he speaks on his behalf. He shouts and seven thunders speak, but John is kept from writing down what they say. In fact, it is the one secret of Revelation that John is not permitted to record. And as it remains hidden, there really is no point in discussing this further. What the thunders said is unknowable. What we must focus on is what is knowable. Look at verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. As this messenger raises his hand toward heaven, he swears an oath by the Creator God. Now, some might look at this and say, well, if this mighty messenger is Christ, isn't it strange that he would swear such an oath by himself? But God has done this before. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 through 18 explains that when men swear oaths, they invoke the name of someone or something greater than themselves to confirm the truth of what they say. However, in God's case, there is no one greater. And so he confirms the truth of what he promises by swearing on himself. What God has sworn to do will be done. The messenger declares that there will be no more delay. It is time for the mystery of God to be fulfilled. The whole purpose of God in human history will be revealed when the last trumpet is blown. Though this part of the vision is strange, it reveals the truth that history is moving towards the inevitable triumph of God and that though evil may flourish for a while, it will not win in the end. According to John's vision, there is going to be a final showdown. Our great enemy will finally be defeated. The questions will find their answers and the wrongs will all be righted. John continues in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. 
Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. John is told to take the scroll. Notice it's not handed to him. Even when he asks the messenger to give it to him, he is told that he must take it. For God's revelation is never forced on anyone. We must receive it. The scroll is a symbol of the prophecies John is yet to speak. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel was also given a scroll to eat by God. It too tasted like honey in his mouth before he gave a prophecy of woe. This word from the Lord is sweet to John also, but it causes bitterness in his stomach because of the terrible judgment that is to come upon those who've rejected Christ. You know, as we read God's word, it tastes sweet in our mouths too, because we're redeemed and belong to Christ. There's so much we can delight in and give thanks to him for. However, as we metabolize God's message, as we take his word into us and process it to bring life to our souls, it should also create a reaction within us concerning all that awaits those who do not repent. It should cause us distress and cause us to pray. This interlude between the trumpets continues into chapter 11, and when we pick up our study there next time, we'll be introduced to some of the significant characters in the outworking of God's final plan. Believe me, you won't want to miss it. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.